From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. So my name's Emily Dvorak. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, it's an interesting place to be faculty because it's an interdisciplinary school, so we have faculty from all different disciplines, and I'm a trained historian. Um, most of the folks in the school are social scientists. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of a fun place to be doing history, in large part because I get to teach history all the time, which is wonderful. I mean, if I was in a traditional history department, I would probably not be teaching labor history, which is my area of specialty very often, but instead I get to teach it on a very regular basis because I'm one of two historians that are, you know, actively writing and going into the archives. And so it's, you know, when I come to an archives, it's like so lovely to be like in my community of people, you know? Um, so I really do see it as like both a vacation and work at the same time. So I'm writing an article about the Equal Rights Amendment um, at least I thought I was before I came here this week, during the 1940s. So not what we think of as the traditional battle around the 60s and 70s, but the Equal Rights Amendment during the 40s kind of um, was rejuvenated by all of the union organizing that was going on during World War II, coming out of the Great Depression and the passage of the Wagner Act, um, and just you know our incredible rise of private sector unionization in the 40s, and um, so there was just a lot more attention being paid to it. I mean, the National Woman's Party, which introduced the Equal Rights Amendment every single year between oh, 1920, you might have to double check the numbers, but all the way through to the 70s, um, it was introduced, same text every year um, in an effort to pass it, um, kind of got uh, reignited, like that more attention was paid to it in the 40s after World War II. And I think there was just a lot more attention being paid to social issues in general because we were, as a country, trying to figure out what we were going to look like as a welfare state. And there was a lot of tension between the labor movement and the business community about what exactly America was going to look like in a post-World War II period. Um, and so I thought when I did my initial research, it was all union side stuff. And I thought it would be a much more, uh, it would be a much richer uh, article if I looked at the papers of the National Women's Party, which, thank goodness, are a microfilm at Northwestern University, which is near where I live, so I'm able to just go to Northwestern whenever I please, and then come here to the Hagley to look at um, to look at the National Association of Manufacturers papers, because working class women often called the National Women's Party the ladies auxiliary of the National Association of Manufacturers. So I thought, well, that will be fun to... You know, of course, you come with this hope that you actually find, like, you know, that one uh, smoking gun that, like, totally ties everything together. I have not found that smoking gun yet. But I found ample evidence that there was cross-fertilization going on between women who are both active in NAM or sort of NAM-affiliated groups and the National Women's Party. There's definitely um, some, you know, both communication and, like, sort of shared... Um, sort of a shared intellect and shared speaker bureau kinds of things. And, you know, so yeah, there's, it, it's been a fruitful trip for that reason. In my research up until now, I've kind of um, 
steered away from reading the literature on the rise of the conservative women's movement, but I'm now realizing that I'm going to have to delve into that for this book. And not, not for any like ideological reason, just because I thought, okay, I, I can only consume so much information right now. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, the, the type, well, first sort of big picture, the type of women that um, I'm finding tend to be highly educated, presumably white. I mean, we don't have demographic data on it, but based on their educational background, we're talking about, you know, highly educated white women. I definitely need to spend more time, you know, doing like bio searches on them and obituaries are always excellent sources of information. Um, but, you know, who are working, um, who are professionals, whether they're professors or they're working for different companies, oftentimes in kind of like a professionalized, um, like housekeeping model, right? So these are women who are like looking around issues of like workplace, workplace productivity and workplace systems, um, which is not a far stretch from like the professionalization of home economics. Um, so we're coming out of like, these aren't necessarily, like I found one woman whose name I was searching for. She was like, a, she was a pioneering, you know, one of the first women to get her PhD in engineering. Um, ah, yeah, Lillian Gilbreth. So I'm just learning about her. Um, but she had 12 kids. She was married. Um, and her kids ended up writing you ever heard the book called Cheaper by the Dozen and it got made into a movie? Yeah. So her kids wrote that book because she had 12 kids and she and her husband did like work time, like yeah. time production studies on their family, right? Yeah. And then like <laughs> folded it into their work. So it was these kinds of women, right? Who are doing, um, if they were married, they were kind of coming out of this home economics tradition and then applying it to industrial, you know, the industrial world or they were doing, um, maybe they came out of the New Deal um, you know, policy folks, um, advisors um, during the New Deal and the war. And instead of taking a track to the left and going and working with labor unions, they tracked to the right and ended up working in industry. Um, and so I am finding quite a few women, um, and one woman in particular who became this woman, uh, Louise Bushnell, who became the project coordinator, program coordinator for NAM's women's department which they actually had a women's department that they founded in the 40s. The papers don't have like a specific, of course, series just dedicated to the women's department. Um, they have a sort of small collection. You have to kind of hunt through the collection to find that. Um, but they seem to focus mostly on women's clubs, like reaching out to um, the National Association of Women's Clubs and then different state women's clubs. So they would be, you know, they would... She would get invited and ho come in and speak on various issues of the economy, security, anti-communism, democracy, the future of democracy in America. Like we're at this pivotal turning point for free enterprise to thrive. Where are we going with this? And a lot of um, promotion of right to work after the passage of Taft-Hartley. Um, so why right to work is good for states, um, why unions are bad for free enterprise and democratic future and the ability to, lots of focus on like individual success like, um, and it's interesting to look at it from a gendered perspective right because we're talking about women wanting to thrive as individuals right like mm -hmm. I don't want to just be one of many I want to be a successful woman right and so that I I kind of can imagine this idea of individualism really kind of appealing in many ways to women 
um, who are highly educated but feel kind of not recognized for their intellect. Um, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment to somebody listening today is like kind of a no-brainer, right? Like everybody should be equal regardless of sex, right? That It's as simple as that. Um, in the 1940s, that was seen as very problematic um, by working class women um, because the way that they had protected themselves in the workplace, in the wage earning workplace, was to pass um, a series of protectionist legislation in the 20s that you know limited the number of hours they could work and um, you know put a cap on child labor, um, all sorts of things that like you know are are sort of conducive to having a less exploitative workplace. And so because union density wasn't really strong and because union density often wasn't high in places that were specifically, you know, in workplaces that were gendered very female, because um, industrial, you know, unions were thriving in places that were predominantly male workplaces. Of course, women were working there, but in places where you found largely women working, those didn't become unionized until much later or never did. Um, working class women were really afraid to lose those protections. So they were all for this idea of equality. They were like, yes, equality is a great idea. We believe we're equal. But if we pass a law like this, it's going to mean that any law that's on the books right now is going to be void um, because it specifies gender in these laws. And they appealed, um, women affiliated with different unions appealed to the National Women's Party in the 40s and the mid 40s saying, listen, we really want to support um, an equal rights amendment. And they proposed an alternate bill called the Women's Status Bill. It's gotten very little scholarly attention. And the bill, basically, men and women are equal, you know, with the caveat that we're going to keep these kinds of, you know, protections in place. Um, but it was it was really a matter of a couple words difference. The National Women's Party was absolutely against any kind of uh, compromise language. They said, you know, this is the bill we want. This is the only amendment we want to make to the Constitution. We refuse to have any kind of negotiations around it. And in fact, the unions um, uh, sought to introduce their women's status bill at the same time as the Equal Rights Amendment as a way to encourage women to back that bill and lobby uh, state, state and national legislators to pass the women's status bill. Ultimately, neither one passed. But it could have been really powerful if both groups, you know, and the National Women's Party was comp comprised primarily of upper middle class, wealthy white women. Um, you know, most notoriously, you know, Alice Paul um, during the fight for suffrage, you know, told, you know, black women um, that they couldn't march, right, uh, with white women during their big march on, you know, President Wilson's inaugural day, right? And you have to understand, you know, we don't want to rock the boat. You, you can march in the back with the black women. And of course, Ida B. Wells, you know, famously cut in and marched with white women the white women on that day. And so, you know, National Women's Party doesn't have the best track record with being like a little more radical or cutting edge. Um, they're pretty singularly focused and they stayed that way. By the 60s and 70s, um, there was still a split among labor union women, but times had changed enough and union density had been high for so, so many decades that while there were still some holdouts um, within the labor movement of women who didn't want to pass an equal rights amendment for fear of still losing some of these protections, um, which still were in place by the 70s. Um, 
most most of the labor movement got behind through the National Organization for Women and other groups got behind the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, which did ultimately pass, but it was never ratified by enough states. Yeah, so the 40s is an interesting time to look at it because you can really look at this class dynamic and the sort of name calling that got thrown back and forth and um, the tensions that would arise when both groups were lobbying on Capitol Hill. And, um, and then so it got me thinking about, well, I know who the allies were for the labor movement, but I don't really know who the allies were who were supporting the Equal Rights Amendment um, on the, the side of the National Women's Party. And so that's something that I, I think will make a much richer article is understanding that a little bit more. And also just given the rise, you know, when I first wrote this chapter, um, the literature around the rise of the conservative women's movement hadn't really happened yet. So now it's a great opportunity to be able to weave some of that literature in um, and, and have a sort of more complicated, more nuanced exam, you know, examination of it. So in part because they know, of course, women are going into industry, they're working in all of these factories that are member organizations or member companies of the National Association of Manufacturers. But they really get that women are, you know, 50% of the population and have a vote, right? And have some influence. Um, and that if they're trying to recruit all of these men to be active, they need to get their wives on board. So not really unlike the labor movement. As they're organizing male workers, they want to get their wives on board and have them join these women's auxiliaries. Similarly, they don't call it an auxiliary, they call it they call it um, just the women's department, but they have these women's activities and conferences for women, speaking events, concurrent conferences that their husbands are going to and then these women are going to. And in all of them, they're talking about how women are champions, how women are, you know, the shapers of um, democracy as mothers, but also as thinkers. And they go so far as to say, and I'm going to quote from this one, um, piece, they say, further, women are more and more the owners of our NAM member companies. I, I don't know where they get this data. And this is the reason enough for the NAM to want you to take part in framing the laws under which the companies must operate. Women now own almost three quarters of all assets in America. I don't know where they're getting that. Including about $100 billion worth of stock. They also have $60 billion in savings accounts and about $35 billion in government bonds. We are sure that the women who own this share in America will be conscientious in safeguarding the freedoms and the rights of us all. So this is 1959. So this is a speech by Mrs. Louise Bushnell um, titled Let's Keep Our Republic um, that she's making before the Business and Professional Women's Club in New York in 1959. Now, they, 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 they use that like paragraph a lot in a variety of different ways. I, have, I mean, I was talking to another researcher in the archives today. I was like, I don't know how they can possibly justify those numbers given that women couldn't even really get mortgages in their own names until the 1970s, um, couldn't get credit cards. I mean, 50s is still early for credit cards, but like couldn't get credit couldn't really have bank I mean they were still like under their so my guess is that what they're really talking about are women married to men who own all this stuff and thereby are partial owners mm -hmm. by virtue of their marriage to their husbands mm -hmm. I mean I'm, that's what I'm guessing I need to dig deeper but it's this sense of like we we think you're super duper important and we're going to throw out these numbers that make you sound even more impressive than you probably are <laughs> 
on a national level, like that your influence is greater than it truly is if we think about monetary influence, right? Um, but they have somehow they have the capacity through their husbands, right, and through Nam, to to uh, to influence right the direction of of business and policy, like free enterprise policy mm-hmm. in this country. And so yeah, they they have this whole sort of um, very pro woman uh, messaging that comes all throughout the 40s and into the 50s and into the 60s. It's really kind of fascinating. And, you know, connecting it to the rise of the literature around the conservative women's movement really, like, segues nicely into that. If you think about the women's clubs and, and sort of, you know, getting involved in different, you know, the Republican Party and, um, and in the South and the Democratic Party, you know, party politics. And they're doing a much better job of it than the labor movement is. The labor movement has kind of dropped the ball at this point. I mean, that's also what I write about is... During the Cold War, the labor movement went into retreat. And so where they should be putting all of this energy into empowering women, they did a ton of it in the 40s, but they really um, uh, moved away from that and took away a lot of the resources that they were pouring in in the 40s. So if the business, you know, business interests are pouring all these resources into the 50s, the the labor movement's asleep um, at the wheel in terms of what they could be doing to empower women. The largest density of unionization was still in the in the North for the most part, but th- before Taft-Hartley passed in 47, there was a lot of success organizing in the South. So there had been a lot of discussion amongst labor union women about the power of like, you know, making sure that African-Americans had the right to vote and weren't having to pay these poll taxes, that lynching was still going on in the Jim Crow South, and that you know, we needed to make sure that all workers were protected and all women workers were protected, whether they're in unions or not in unions. I mean, they really saw themselves as building a movement of working class women across the country, regardless of race. You know, if you remember, this is the peak of unionization in this country. They're not really focused on public sector workers at this point because we don't have like the vast number of public sector workers we have today that comes later. Um, So if you think about, you know, 36% union density in just the private sector in the 1940s. Um, and these are largely women coming out of industrial work, you know, where their husbands are working in, in industrial jobs. They're seeing that as like, okay, the unions kind of got that covered and the Fair Labor Standards Act has got that covered and the Wagner Act has got that covered. But, you know, there's still a lot of women working in jobs that fall outside of those protections. Because um, of course, agricultural workers and, and domestic workers are excluded from the Wagner Act public sector workers are excluded from the Wagner Act. Um, so I think that there was still a concern that women were sort of uniquely exploited. Um, they certainly wanted to make sure that everybody was safe at work and wasn't working, you know, were working a reasonable number of hours. Um, but there definitely was a gendered focus on like this idea of, of making sure that women weren't exploited in the workplace. One thing that was really interesting is they published, um, and I don't think it's the full spread, the full, um, like, but they published a newsletter for women called Program Notes um, that was, it was a sizable newsletter, one, two, three, maybe eight pages total, you know, pretty heavy content um, that touched on all, it was specifically geared towards women's clubs and other women's organizations. And so that was their kind of, um, you know, tool to get information out. And it was sent out monthly. Um, and they were sending out, like, I was, I found later um, kind of, um, so there were the program notes, and then later on I found some reports, and the NAM was targeting um, 
four specific areas um, in the 40s. They were targeting educators, women, the church, and agriculture, with the most success being amongst educators and women. You know, they were sending out at any given time 90,000 copies of the program a month, right? So you imagine one woman gets this and then shares it with two or three other women. I mean, you could easily triple that number of women who've seen it, right? Or if it's, you know, at a church or, you know, gets circulated. So a lot of women are reading or potentially putting their eyes on something like program notes, which focuses a lot on legislation, focuses a lot on like what America is going to look like after the war and like what their obligation is to like protect free enterprise, protect business interests, and to protect democracy. It, the tone of it changes a little bit. There's a shift in editor. So the first editor's tone is much more like, what do we think? And, the, the, and she even has like, what do you think? A little section where she'll have a quote that sort of could be controversial and wants women to write letters back. Um, the next editor is much more, uh, a lot less open and much more like, this is what we think. Mm-hmm. This is what you should say. Um, but, and they have a lot of correspondence coming back. So women, you know, like 900 letters per, you know, issue that would come back with women having questions and comments. And I unfortunately haven't found those yet. Um, so those have been, those were really exciting to look at and gave a real sense of it. And then um, there is one full box and I'm going through that now that goes from the 40s up through the 60s of the outreach they did to women's clubs. Um, and that's pretty substantial. And that is where I'm finding a lot of these speeches that they're giving or conferences that they're holding. You know, they hold conferences where they bring together industry leaders as well as, you know, the conferences are predominantly, they're focused on the importance of women with a lot of men on the program and then a handful of these professional women who who speak to issues. Um, but the idea is clearly that they want to make sure that industry leaders, the male industry leaders, understand that this, like, women's campaign is important um, and that they should be turning out for it and turning out people for the conferences. You know, not all women's clubs were going to be supporters of the National Association of Manufacturers, and they had really mixed membership. So, you know, there was one conference that was completely transcribed, and there were women from different labor unions standing up and clearly, like, kind of agitating the pot. I just wrote, like, a, a short think piece on the Trump election and just how women, white women in particular, played an instrumental role in getting him elected, right? And and women don't vote as a block, right? Like, if we're looking at this from an intersectional perspective, right, um, women represent all sorts of interests. And so class is critical, and, and the vast majority of women we're talking about in this research are white. Um, but when we add class to it, it definitely demonstrates that they're not looking at, you know, they're not monolithic. While they all believe that women deserve to be equal, they come at it from very different perspectives and they come at it for different reasons, right? Um, So for the women of National Association of Manufacturers, it's so that, you know, women should be seen as equal so that they can be on par with other corporate men, right? And successful within this sort of free enterprise, pro private uh, business and, you know, experience versus working class women are saying we should all be equal because the government has an obligation to make sure that everybody's equal, right, Um, across gender, race, and class lines, and everyone has access to this sort of American standard of living. That's not necessarily 
what what the the business world is saying, what the women in the business world are saying. They're talking about, and you know, the working class women are talking about an American standard of living, and the business side are talking about sort of an American way of life, which are two very different perspectives. Um, but the thing that overarches that is this idea of equality. So they're not, you know, they're talking about similar things, but for very different reasons. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.